The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host... Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. This is just a note to say that if you are hearing this, then you are not currently part of my membership programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show, you will need to become a member of my membership site, the Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England, via the link in the description associated with this podcast. Now, in a moment, we'll get into the subject of today's episode. But first, I thought I'd bring you up to date with a few things that are going on behind the scenes here at the Tudor Travel Guide. As I approach August, I always take a moment at this time of year to stand back, pause, take a deep breath and look at all the places that we've been to and the things that we have done and achieved together over the previous year. Of course, we've been on many adventures together, whether you follow them here on the Tudor History and Travel Show, where we've done, yes, another year of podcasting, or whether you follow my adventures on social media, particularly Instagram, where I produce nearly daily reels that chart my adventures on the road. And I know well, I hope and I know from feedback that they give you inspiration about places you would like to visit. And just a note, therefore, if you are not on Instagram, but really like to keep your finger on the pulse of what is happening and get your insight and inspiration for your own future Tudor road trips, then do make sure that you pop over onto Instagram and follow me there, along with 156,000 other lovely folk. We've also, over the last 12 months, enjoyed two virtual summits. The first, last autumn, 500 years of Anne Boleyn. And then, of course, this year, I covered the coronation and the history of coronation, uh, wrapped around, of course, that historic event back in May. But perhaps the most significant and certainly the most purposeful and exciting for me has been the introduction of my new membership programme, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. This is my long-term project to be a modern-day antiquarian and to try and capture in as much detail as possible Tudor England as it existed back in the 16th century and as it appears now in a Leyland-esque type venture. And I wanted to invite as many of you as possible to join me on that journey and to have access to some of my most detailed uh, content from across my different platforms, be that on podcast or in written form. And of course, also to provide as many of you as possible 
with even more insight and inspiration for planning your Tudor adventures through the provision of a whole range of different itineraries. Oh, well, that has been a major undertaking and I want to thank so much all of those of you who have so far become members either at Road Trip Traveller or my armchair traveller level. It's so wonderful to be able to be sharing the adventure with you and to be building that community. And of course, if you are interested in coming on board, then of course, you can check out the link in the description associated with this podcast. And if you stick around, I am going to share with you my latest venture and undertaking. It's again, quite significant. It's quite a biggie. And I know it's something that I get emailed about all the time. So I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of this episode. All right, my friends. Well, I think we're ready to press on with indeed the content of today's show. Now, when it comes round to July, there are a couple of things that come to my mind when I think about Tudor history. One is, of course, the death of Edward VI and the succession crisis that that prompted. This is, of course, the month of three monarchs. And the other event that always comes to mind these days for me is the sinking of the Mary Rose on July the 19th, 1545. If you follow me at all, particularly on Instagram, you will know I'm a massive fan of the Mary Rose Museum, a total convert from somebody who really wasn't that interested, after all, it's only a ship, isn't it, to somebody who is wildly enthusiastic about the museum because it is literally a time capsule, an insight into everyday Tudor life, and it is utterly unique. I love it. And if I haven't persuaded you yet, please do go along and visit as soon as you can. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Now, a little over a year or so ago, I met with Dominic Fontana at Cowdery House to talk specifically about the Cowdery murals. Dominic is a retired professor of the University of Portsmouth and has studied the murals in great detail. I found it truly eye-opening. And of course, if you want to catch up with that episode, just scroll back into the back catalogue and perhaps we will also put a link in the description associated with this podcast to make it easier for you to find it. But while I was with Dominic who is an inhabitant of the Isle of Wight, um, just off the south coast of England, of course, and overlooking the Solent, where the Battle of the Solent took place and the sinking of the Mary Rose happened. Well, Dominic said to me, why don't you come over to the Isle of Wight and we can go and stand on some locations that were really important and get a great view of the geography of the Battle of the Solent? Well, it was an invitation that was just too good to pass up. I had never been to the Isle of Wight before and so was keen to find out more. Well, you join us, my friends, on beautiful sunny day when I met with Dominic on Benbridge Down, which, as I said, is an important location associated with the French contingent, the French side of the Battle of the Solent, as you will hear in this podcast. But before I go any further... I should say two things. First of all, that this podcast was recorded in two parts. The first on Benbridge Down uh, on the Isle of Wight, when we considered the French side, the French perspective of the battle. 
And then I regrouped with Dominic. We caught the ferry back over to the mainland and went to South Sea Castle to take a view on the battle, this time from the English perspective and from the very place that Henry VIII is shown watching the battle uh, just outside of South Sea Castle. The second thing I want to say is on this occasion, we videoed our podcast in the making. So if you want to see me chatting with Dominic and capture some of the visuals associated with his podcast, then again, make sure you check out the description associated with his podcast and I will put a link to my YouTube channel and you will be able to listen and see this podcast at the same time. It was a gloriously sunny few days. And so the views and the images that you'll see are particularly spectacular. All right. Well, without further ado, I think it's time that I introduce you to our expert guide. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dominic Fontana and the Battle of the Solent. Welcome, dear listeners, to this episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. Well, wow, I find myself in a place I've been really keen to visit for, well, in fact, the whole of my adult life. I'm here on the Isle of Wight and it's my first visit here. And I've been lucky enough to arrive on an incredibly beautiful, sunny summer's day at the top of a place called Bembridge Down. And we'll be talking in a moment with our expert and guide today about why we've met right here. Now, in fact, the topic of the day is all about the Mary Rose and the Battle of the Solent. Now, of course, I have covered this topic before, particularly when I met with our current guest a few episodes ago now at Cowdery House. We were talking about the Cowdery murals. And so I think this is a great time to say hello, Dominic Fontana. Welcome back to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Well, I'm glad to be back, Sarah. And it's lovely to, to see you here on such a fabulous day with the Skylarks flying. They are, they are indeed. And, and I'm actually here because of you, because when we met and recorded our podcast before, you said, oh, because you're, you're an inhabitant here, you're an island dweller, aren't you? I am. And so you said, come on over to the Isle of Wight, Sarah, and I can, we, can, we can stand at some specific spots which help us tell the story of the Battle of the Solent and actually see it geographically. Well, that was something I just couldn't turn away. So thank you for inviting us. Well, thank you for coming. It gives me the opportunity to show you the sheer scale of the operation that the French had put into place to try and invade England. Absolutely. And, and this episode is actually going out on the anniversary of the sinking of the Mary Rose, which was... The 19th of July, 1545. OK, so we're going to transport ourselves back in time. And we're here on the Isle of Wight because it, it, it has some real associations with the French attack. And you're going to tell us all about that and, and, and how the French actually invaded the island uh, in a moment. But... For those people who perhaps don't know so much about this Battle of the Solent and how it came to happen in the first instance, I think before we kind of talk about where we are, we should roll things back a little bit and put some context in place. So what was going on in Europe at the time that led the French to think that this was a great time to try and invade England? Gosh. 
That's a big question. <laughs> so much was going on in Europe, just over the English Channel, not very far from where we're standing. Um, there was great rivalry um, in the years leading up to the, the Battle of the Solent in 1545 between Francois I, King of France, and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain. And with Henry VIII as the other party in those um, discussions, shall we say, um, they kept making alliances um, with one another. And so there was a shift of power going on all the time over that period. Um, and at the point where the French decided to invade England, Fr uh, Francois was very much the opponent of Henry VIII. Henry had really upset Francois. <laughs> Largely by invading France in 1544. In the summer of 1544, Henry took an army of about 40,000 English soldiers across the Channel from Dover over to Calais, which was an English possession mm. at the time. And then they'd marched, originally intending to march on Paris, but deciding to divert to Boulogne, where Henry laid siege to the town of Boulogne, shot an awful lot of artillery at the town and the townspeople, did a lot of damage, mm. and captured the town in September of 1544. It was very much a case of Henry wanting to prove that he was still a warrior prince. I mean, this stage he was getting towards the end of his life, he was not a well man mm. and I think rather fooling himself that he was still young and energetic and able to actually carry, carry on on campaign. But that's what he did. And he'd acquired lots of money from the uh, dissolution of the monasteries that enabled him to afford to do this. And so Henry was really pushing hard at Francois and Francois really felt the ignominy of having his town of Boulogne um, taken from him. It really, really upset him. Mm. Um, and consequently, he must have spent several months thinking about that and arranging for support from other parts of Europe, and in particular from the Pope, uh, and gathering together an enormous force. He managed to bring over to Le Havre, on the north coast of France, um, an army of about 30,000 soldiers and about 225 ships within which to convey them across the English Channel to invade England and depose Henry VIII himself. Do we know what the scale of the sort of goal was for Francis? I mean... It when you stop and think about what he was trying to do, it's a little bit mind-boggling. Was there a plan in place? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think he had a plan in the sense that he wanted to topple Henry. I'm not so sure that they'd really thought through the military tactics that would be necessary in order to bring that 
actually to fruition because we ended up with a situation um, of this massive French fleet uh, with a huge army aboard ending up just off the eastern end of the Isle of Wight um, with no means of getting those soldiers ashore except by the ship's boats. That means that you could land maybe 20 troops at a time Yikes. from a boat. Now, onto an opposed shore, they are really aren't going to stand much of a chance. It's like the Tudor version of the D-Day landing. It is it? exactly that. Yes. It's this problem of how do you shift very large amounts of men and material, their equipment, their food, their armaments, their powder, how do you get that all ashore and mustered up so that it's in useful quantities? Mm. And that's a really tricky thing in Tudor naval um, operations. And do you think there was just ignorance of the geography? No, I don't. <laughs> I actually think that the French knew the coast pretty well. It's, it's only just, what, 80 miles across to yeah. the north coast of France, directly uh, from the Isle of Wight, um, there would have been trading links. There would have been sailors going backwards and forwards from both sides. The English certainly knew the French coast. The French almost certainly knew the English coast extremely well. And, you know, it is this thing. How do you manage all those people? You've got no mobile telephones. You've got no co computers to communicate with your, your men in the field. You've got to do it all by letters and messages. You've got to try and get together enormous amounts of food simply to keep the army going. Yeah. And, you know, if that's got to be uh, some meat and some bread, well, you know, that's thousands of loaves of bread that you're going to need every single day. And where did all the ships come from? They set sail from Le Havre, didn't they, which is on the French coast. But where did, where did all of this, these, these boats well, come from? The, 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 the French had quite a lot of ships around in, on the north coast. So that's most of the big sailing ships that they brought. Those mostly acted as troop transports and as the, the battleships. But they'd also arranged to bring galleys from uh, the Mediterranean and the galleys um, were very different from the northern European ships. They relied um, not so much on wind, they did have a sail, a big mm. sail, but they were able to use oars to manoeuvre. They were filled with galley slaves who were prisoners of war and convicts um, whose job it was really solely to be the, the, the motive power of those vessels and my God, they could row. Wow. Um, so they were brought from Venice and from Genoa. They'd sailed all the way down the coast of Italy, joined up, gone from there right the way across the Mediterranean, out through the Straits of Gibraltar, um, you know, and then up the coast of Portugal. And we know that they called in at Lisbon on their way up uh, past Portugal because they picked up a, a pilot to navigate them up to Le Havre, who turns out to be a Dominican friar, in other words, a monk, um, a chap called Ferdinand Oliveira, um, who brought them all the way across the Bay of Biscay um, and up the, the western approaches into the channel uh, and up to Le Havre. So they'd amassed 
lots of ships, about probably about 225 of them at La Havre, mm. filled them up with 30,000 soldiers and just about every conceivable item of artillery and powder and shot. The king, Francois, had then had dinner on board his flagship with his admiral, Claude Danebeau. Um, and just after dinner, the ship, the flagship, caught a light <gasps> and was burnt down to the water. Are you line. kidding? I didn't Quite know. Quite a number of people killed. Ah. So that was a very bad, bad omen. They would have seen it like that. Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> very much so. And so they transferred, actually. Then the, the uh, Admiral transferred over to another ship. And they started to think about heading across the channel. And so they came out of Love and uh, the newly appointed flagship promptly hit the bottom. <laughs> it ran aground, displaced its masts um, and uh, started shipping water. Now, it's not quite clear from the, uh, the, the, the document, documents as to whether she made it right the way over here or not. She may have done. Um, but then they had to transfer again from that vessel to a third vessel <laughs> as the flagship. So nothing has gone right. And they haven't even reached the Isle of Wight. Crikey. Yeah. Um, so when they arrived, um, the Admiral Claude Danabeau was on his third flagship. The fleet was with him. There are 30,000 soldiers in amongst the crew of all of these big sailing ships. And let's think a bit about that for a minute too. Let, let, please do paint us a picture of what life on board would have been like. Well, life on board for the sailors was hard, but it was what they were used to. Life on board for the soldiers would have been totally, totally different to their normal experience. For one thing, they'd be reliant upon the crew of the ship to provide them with their food, which wouldn't be what they normally eat out in the field. They normally make a campfire right. and cook their own food on the campfire. So, you know, barbecued meat <laughs> and some bread and things like mm -hmm. that. And wine. And, then, and wine, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then they'd be on board a ship where they would be being fed largely things like boiled meat or boiled vegetables and so on. Oh. Mm they probably wouldn't have liked that much. Right. And then you've got the delicate problem of how do you go to the lavatory? Was it over um, the side of the ship? Is it that was what? over the side of the ship, but up at the heads, at the, the bow of the ship, right. and dangling over the side. Now, Quite dangerous, really. Absolutely. Not only dangerous, but completely different from their normal field practice yeah. as a soldier of sort of wandering off and digging yeah. a hole. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got things like that. And it's such a strange, for them, high-tech environment as to, you know, being able to, to, to manage their own lives. And to be confined to that ship for a few days yeah. while you make your crossing across the English Channel, mm. knowing that you're about to face an enemy, yeah. my goodness. The that's tension, the tension it, on board. It must have been absolutely palpable. Yeah. Yeah, and frustrating as well when they got here. And we'll talk about that in a moment, what happened when they got here. But can I just go back to the point that we made about the plan that didn't seem to be in place? I, I guess I'm thinking the only plan they must have had was that, that somehow they were going to sink the English fleet in Portsmouth Harbour 
and, and get access to the harbour. That must have been it, right? I, I think that's pretty much what they were trying to do. They yeah. thought that the English would sail out from Portsmouth Harbour and the Solent out into the English Channel where they would have a ship-on-ship um, artillery contest um, and that the French would win because they outnumbered the English about three to one. Um, now, the English would have been very silly to have taken up that challenge. Mm, be lured out. Be lured out. The thing is that nobody had really done this at that stage. They'd never really tried um, an artillery battle between broadside firing ships. Um, and so everybody was learning. Everybody okay. was learning about the, the ships, about the weapon systems, about the tactics that you might employ. So, the, so they, sorry. So there's mm, never been a battle at sea. Not, not, not of that sort or of that really? scale. You see, I hadn't, I hadn't appreciated that either. You know, it, it, it was a steep learning curve, I think, for everybody. Um, and you're trying to do this where your ability to adapt to changing circumstances is quite limited because of the communications difficulties. Yeah. You know, you can't make instant decisions. You really have to plan what you're going to do. Yeah. And you're doing it within what can be a very dynamic environment with changing tides and changing currents, changing wind um, and so on. And so, you know, it's very mm. difficult to see how you would do it. The French made a big mistake because they hadn't really thought the whole process through sufficiently. And it was this problem of landing the troops. What they were hoping to do, I think, is to make it into Portsmouth Harbour, where there were some deep water quaysides, because there they could pull the ships up and just discharge all the troops. Or Southampton, where equally there are some large um, deep water quaysides. And again, they could have discharged troops. But blocking the middle of the Solent was Henry VIII's fleet. They weren't going anywhere. They were just sitting there on their anchor cables, um, spread across the Solent and Spithead, um, such that the French couldn't go past them without being shot up. Mm. So we, we have a sort of slightly stalemate it's situation. A standoff. A stand stand we have a Mexican standoff. Absolutely. <laughs> both sides armed to the teeth, yeah. both ready yeah. um, to, to let loose on the other, but unable to do so. Also, and I think this is also quite crucial to the whole event, was that the weather was just like today. Was it now? And I was you, going to ask about the weather. You, you know, we can feel it here. We've got no, no wind. wind. Yeah. And we're right on top of a hill here. Yeah. And so the big English ships and the big French ships couldn't move. The galleys, on the other hand, that the French had brought from uh, the Mediterranean could. Because mm, they had the, the because oarsmen. Because they had the oarsmen. Um, and so what then happened is that the uh, French admirals sent some of the galleys in to attack the vanguard of the English ships over there in the middle of the Solent, looking over towards Portsmouth. You know, it's a narrow strip of water. I think at this point we maybe should do a little bit of geography for those people who really don't know so much about the Isle of Wight and its relationship to the south coast and Portsmouth. So could we, before we get into the battle a little bit more, maybe we could just therefore pause and just describe 
where we are in the world and literally where we're standing. And I should say, actually, dear listeners, that we are actually videoing uh, this particular podcast. So I hope that there will be a video that you might be able to tune into to see a little bit of the surroundings that we're talking about. And failing that, there certainly will be a show notes page and we'll be taking some pictures uh, as we move around the island so that you can see some of the landmarks that Dominic and I are talking about. Anyway, back to you, Dominic. Where are we in the world and where are we standing? Well, we're here on the Isle of Wight, which is an island about 10 miles from north to south and about 20 miles from east to west. And we're just off the south coast of England, right in the central south coast. Um, just over to the north of us is the city of Portsmouth. And literally we can see that we from can where see we're standing. That, yeah, yeah, from where we're standing and um, in between... The Isle of Wight and Portsmouth is the Solent. It's a narrow piece of sea, it's tidal. Um, it has very strong currents that run in it, so uh, a mariner has to be aware of what they're doing. And although it's a relatively open stretch of water, um, it has constraining sandbanks on both the island side and the mainland side that make it much more difficult to navigate. Right. Um, so uh, a sailor really has to know what they're doing right. when okay. they come into the Solent. Mm. And getting into Portsmouth Harbour, very, very tricky indeed. Is it? Is it? Right. So the island is is just here off the south coast and we can see ooh, probably about 15 miles 20 miles into the distance up to the south downs absolutely so um, we can easily see yes it's in the distance but we can easily see the south coast of england stretching across in front of us and a couple of um, landmarks in Portsmouth. The famous Spinnaker Tower is quite evident from here, which is very close to where you get the ferry to come absolutely. over to the Isle of Wight, if anybody's listening and wants to follow it in our footsteps after this podcast. And, and of course, we've got the expanse of this particular part of the Isle of Wight in front of us. Yeah, and this, this particular hill is the uh, eastern end of the chalk ridge that runs right the way across the middle of the island from east to west ends up in the, uh, the famous Needles um, at the western end of the island. Um, and from here, this particular part of the island could be cut off by uh, water coming into Bembridge Harbour um, and around through to the back of us over to Sandown Bay. Right. And that was very much the case in Tudor times. All right, okay. So almost a sub-island. Uh, within an island. Isle <laughs> okay. Yes. And, and so, so we're, we're, we're looking out, we've got the expanse of, of the water here, and it is just here, I know because you were telling me before we started um, this recording that the French fleet basically pulled up. Can you describe what we'd be seeing here if we were standing here on that day in 1545? Yeah, 
I mean, over to Portsmouth at the north, and then if we look round over to the east, right the way around on the horizon, we can see ships there today waiting to go into Southampton Water. Um, that would have all been filled with these French ships, wow. the whole French fleet, right the way round to the eastern view, right the way round past the eastern end of the island, out into Sandown Bay behind us. It must have been a phenomenal sight. It must have. And I could just imagine if you were an islander standing here watching the ships coming closer on the horizon and seeing this just fleet coming towards you. It must have been pretty terrifying, Absolutely, actually. because their intent was known. Yeah. They knew that they were intending to, to, to land and yeah. invade. Um, and you think, you know, the normal population of the island at that time was maybe about 6,000. Right. And that includes all the old people, all the children, yeah. all the women, uh, yeah. and so on. And my goodness, they'd be facing potentially 30,000 soldiers. Yeah. Um, it would have been a state of utter alarm. There were some English soldiers that Henry had sent over Henry, here. Henry actually was in a really difficult position because his main army was still in France where he'd invaded oh. and captured Boulogne in 1544. Oh, right. So all he really had in England were farmhands and militia. Ooh. Um, and he'd sent groups of the Hampshire militia and the Wiltshire militia over to join the Isle of Wight militia to defend the island. And as far as I can tell at the moment, they had probably about two and a half thousand men right. here on the island in order to try and repel the French attacks. It sounds a bit like Dad's Army of the Tudor period. Now, if you're overseas, you may not know what Dad's Army is like. <laughs> Am I being really unfair? No, you're not. I think that's actually a pretty fair summation of the situation. <laughs> it really was getting a bit desperate. Um, Henry, certainly in his letters at the time, kept writing down to the ports in the West Country, um, to, to Exeter and to uh, um, Falmouth, to try and get the West Country to send more ships and send more men. And they couldn't do it because they didn't have enough men and they didn't have enough victuals to supply them with food and so on on the way. Um, and he was trying to raise... Um, uh, mercenary troops from Europe to come over and help. He had a big order in for uh, German mercenary troops um, with his agent in Antwerp. Right. Um, he'd paid lots of money oh, I didn't and no any German of this. troops had turned oh, up. Oh, really? Um, oh, that would have put him in a good mood. I, uh, <laughs> I suspect not. <laughs> he wasn't exactly a jolly No, he wasn't. Thing. Um, <laughs> So the things were not going well at all for Henry and the English. And for the island itself, you know, they were preparing and had been preparing for invasion for quite some time. The abbey at Cor had been dissolved in the dissolution of the monasteries. The stone from the church there had been stripped down by a Southampton merchant and used to build fortifications on the north coast of the Isle of Wight, both at uh, West Cows and at East Cows, and probably further fortifications amongst the remains of the Abbey at Cor, as well as building a fort at, um, at Seaview, uh, which played a part in the battle, shooting into the sides of the French galleys. Um, and they'd just recently built a, a new fort down at Sandown Bay. 
So the English and the islanders knew this was coming for quite some time. Huge efforts and huge amounts of money had been expended to, to bring this all together. But when it's put to the test, when that big fleet turns up off the Isle of Wight, just on that eastern horizon that we're looking at, and you think, my goodness, how are we going to stop that? How are we that? going to do this? And we've got, of course, Henry over on the south coast at South Sea Castle with, I guess, his Privy Council there. <laughs> he can see this as well. He can see everything oh, going yes. on. And in fact, that's one of the crucial things that the French were hoping would make a difference, that if they landed on the Isle of Wight and burnt some of the villages, that that would so enrage Henry that he would send his ships ah. to their assistance. And lure them out out. of the harbour. And luckily enough, Henry and his admiral, uh, um, uh, John Dudley, Lord Lyle, um, didn't fall into that trap. They remained stationary in the Solent. That has been tempting because from where Henry was standing, and maybe we're jumping forward a bit because I do want us to talk about the actual invasion and what happened, but let's just clear this point up. From where Henry was standing, if they were burning things, he would have seen the smoke coming up. He would have seen all of that carnage unfolding on his land. Oh yes, he would. And I'm sure he would not have been happy (laughs) about that situation. just the indignity of his land being attacked mm. by the French mm. would have been qu- quite something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was quite rational in the sense that uh, he understood what was going on. Um, the next thing that the French then tried doing as well was to um, attack the English ships by using the galleys. Um, and the galleys, because they could row and make their way without wind, were able to run into the Solent. And they were able to group up just off the coast of the Isle of Wight at a piece of sea that is now known as No Man's Land. Okay. And that was halfway between the French fleet and the English fleet. <laughs> right. But it's a sandbank and it's usually quite shallow water over it. But the galleys because they didn't pull much depth of water beneath them, could go there and sit there, organise themselves, get armed, and then do a run-in directly to the bows of the English ships, loose off their forward-facing guns at the English, who couldn't fire back at them because the English ships could fire broadside. They could go to the port side, the left, or the right side, the starboard side, but not very much directly ahead. Wow. I mean, that, that leaves a very vulnerable... So, so yeah, that you would think that that might have tempted them out to start oh, yes. putting to sail and to turn the ships um, around to start firing. What, we, what happened? Well, the, 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 the French had an opportunity between about 7 o'clock in the morning of Sunday the 19th of July 1545 and about one o'clock in the afternoon in which their galleys would be favoured by the tidal current pushing them directly towards the bows of the English ships and ensuring that the English ships were facing bow on towards the French galleys. Mm-hmm. Perfect mm. to get into you know, maybe three, four hundred metres from the bows of the English ships, loose off the big forward-facing guns on the galleys, do some damage 
to the vanguard of the English ships, which was the Mary Rose and the Great Harry. Um, and the French certainly report that they hit the ships. Oh, did they? Ooh, I was yeah. gonna, oh, did they? The, the Great Harry was said to have been um, hit so much that it was difficult to keep it afloat. Really? That's the French claim. Uh-huh. The English make no statement at all on that. <laughs> um, but we do know that the Mary Rose sank. Of course we do, and we'll obviously we'll definitely come on to that in a moment. But in the meantime, so we, what? I think we should cover the landing of the uh, troops mm. on the Isle of Wight uh, before we really get stuck into the heat of yeah. battle and what unfolded with the Mary Rose. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there were several landings made on the island, all on this eastern side of the island. The first one, which was officially sanctioned, was at Sea View, which is up towards Portsmouth as we look across, um, where the galleys had been getting upset by the uh, flanking fire coming in from the small fort. It was officially sanctioned by the Admiral, um, so this was orders, and he sent a party uh, ashore just to the south of Seaview, where the soldiers, the French soldiers, made their way up to the fort, chased away the defending soldiers in the fort, Mm -hmm. who tried to make their way back to the south into some woods, where the French say that they caught them and killed them. Right. Uh, Now, it wasn't a very big fort, Mm. and it probably only had a couple of guns in it, but it was enough to be a real nuisance. Mm -hmm. So that was one small, probably quite brutal action. The next action um, was uh, further to the south of us, um, uh, where a group came ashore uh, again, trying to make their way inland to, to see what happened. They got chased off by the Isle of Wight militia, um, so didn't manage to make it terribly far. And then we come to the spot where we are now, and from here we can see, looking over towards the village of Bembridge and St Helens, and Bembridge Harbour, and there's a a sand spit that just comes out into the sea. Mm -hmm. And that was the point where some of the French soldiers, some of the commanders on some of the galleys, decided to take action for themselves without official orders. Was that a serious breach? Probably. Um, Do you think they would have been punished for that? They would have been, perhaps, if the French side had won, maybe. Um, (laughs) In the event... um, the soldiers landed and they started to manoeuvre around through Bembridge over here and then up towards where we're standing on top of the downs here. Yes, which is a really elevated position and people will see that from the images or the video if they tune in to watch the video. So you mentioned that spit of sand which we can easily see from here but I know there's an opportunity perhaps to go down and stand there and be perhaps in the footsteps of those French soldiers as they came abroad. There's nothing like being on the ground to really understand it. I think you're absolutely right. So that's where we're going to head next. Let's go there. Splendid.
great, Dominic. Well, you brought us down to the beach by Bembridge itself, which is where the French troops came ashore. It's right on this spot here. Is it really? They would have come from just offshore, the whole horizon full of ships, and just made their way through this very, very shallow water here mm. and up onto this gorgeous beach. It's lovely, isn't it? Must have been very easy to bring the, very, the rowing boats aboard. and Very easy, very peaceful. Yeah. Apart from landing on a hostile shore. Yeah, yeah. And just down to the south of us, we've got uh, Bembridge Ledges. So that creates big limestone pavements that go out under the water. And you could not bring a, a right. boat ashore there. You have to be here. So it's really right on yeah. this spot. That is so exciting. And they would have come ashore. I, I mean, I've got a very, very vivid imagination. So I can easily see the whole skyline there filled with ships. Uh, it, really dramatic and exciting and of course they would have just standing as we are on the shore now can still see Portsmouth just over the way there we can almost wave at Henry hello Henry uh, he's not that far yeah, away over is in he? Castle, yeah and <laughs> the whole of the English fleet just sitting over there wow. we could see it all from this spot. very dramatic I wonder what it was like just for your casual eyewitness just seeing this unfold. Terrifying, I Terrifying. imagine. Terrifying. Which way is this going to go? Oh, my goodness me. So, um, what else can we see here? Because you get a completely different perspective. Before we were way up high, we could see for miles. You could see all the way, almost, you know, different um, angles around the island. Here, you've got a much narrower field of vision. But what, what could we see? What are the other landmarks? Well, we can see the entrance to Bembridge Harbour here, which is a very narrow, very shallow entrance. In Tudor days, it would have gone right the way through to uh, Sandown. Um, there would also have been a spit running out on the other side there, out to where the uh, Victorian sea fort is part of Lord Palmerston's defences mm. of Portsmouth. Um, so it would have been quite a constrained area. And that actually is also pretty crucial because the landings that were made here were made firstly without orders. Right. And you can just see how those soldiers out on the boats would think, well, you know, it's not very far over there. Nice beach. Nice beach, place to land. You can make your way inland from here. And they would have been so tempted. Mm. Mm. Yeah, mm, um, absolutely. Just over the other side of the entrance to the harbour, we've got uh, St Helen's Church, which appears just as a white square, mm. which is a sea mark, so that mariners can line up on it. Ah, I see. The church itself was largely washed away um, in the early 18th century, so now only half of the tower still survives on the other side of that white brick wall. Ah. So it now performs a navigation function ah. rather than a religious function. Ah. But that was, I think you were telling me that was, that's actually visible on the Cowdery mural. Yes, it is. That's wow. right. And just off there in the sandbanks, uh, about 10, 12 years ago, there was a large lead pot found, mm. which uh, looks rather as though it might have been a font liner from the uh, church at St Helens. Oh, right. If so, that might well have been stolen by the French attacking the church and saying, oh, that's a nice piece of lead. I'll, I'll have that and take that with me and then losing it on the way. Yeah. Um, 
So it's amazing what does turn up. Yeah, yeah. And um, anything else that we could see or need to pay attention to um, on the skyline here? And you were talking about the galley, the galley before that the Ooh, English... Yes, well, that's right. Yes, the English, because they sank a galley, it should be just off here, directly over there, somewhere maybe a few hundred metres out to sea. Tantalising. Very tantalising. And I hear you're looking for it. Well, I have been looking for it. I haven't found it yet. It may be there somewhere. Who knows if we did find it, wouldn't that be wonderful? Not just to have the Mary Rose herself, but one of her opponents as well. That would be superb. What kind of scale would that boat be in she, comparison to the Mary Rose, She would have been example? smaller than the Mary Rose because she was one of the, the Mediterranean galleys. Mm. Um, she probably would have been about 40 metres long. OK. Um, there may not be that much of it left. Um, because she wouldn't have sunk terribly far out and the seabed is sandy, so she'd probably be buried down in the sand. Okay. But it would be lovely if we managed to find her at some point. Oh, that would be amazing. Are you going to keep your quest going? As I can, yes. <laughs> Who knows? Yes, expensive undertaking, I Indeed. would imagine. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, brilliant. I think we need to continue our story back up on the fort. So let's go back to where we were let's, before. Let's go. Let's do. Yep. <laughs> you have been listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is only available to members of my membership site, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England. To join the waitlist to become a member of The Ultimate Guide, click on the link in the description associated with this podcast. You will be added to the waiting list and I will email you just as soon as the doors to the membership next reopen. I'll see you there. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling.